Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base, with a message titled, Noble Bereans. So, turn in your Bibles to Acts 17, verses 10 to 15, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. In well-informed Christian circles, the word Bereans, well, that requires little explanation. To be a Berean is to be involved in serious study of the Bible. It means that those of us who are Berean wish to learn what the Bible has to say and not what others want us to believe about the Bible. See, I want to stress this matter because as the medieval church grew in political power, it also grew in ignorance and darkness. The doctrine that was developed, especially insidious doctrine, is that the church determines the true meaning of the Bible. And this is the Roman Catholic view of the Bible today. You know, a well-known Roman Catholic website argues that the Protestant view, that's the view of sola scriptura, or that scriptures alone have the power to define what we believe, well, that they say is incorrect. In its place, they argue for scripture plus the apostolic tradition. And they argue for something they call sacred tradition, which is just as authoritative, they say, as the Bible. So what's sacred tradition? Well, let me quote from one Roman Catholic source. And they state, sacred or apostolic tradition consists of the teachings that the apostles passed on orally through their teaching. What does all that mean? Well, it means that the magisterium or the power brokers in the Roman church have the right to interpret the Bible and their interpretation takes priority over what your own eyes see. Let me give some examples of just that. The Roman church teaches that Mary, the mother of Jesus, has grace which she dispenses to others. That's what's behind the statement, Hail Mary, full of grace. Now, that's a bad quotation. It comes from Luke chapter 1, verse 7. Now, if you read that passage in the Roman Catholic Bible, it says that Gabriel greeted Mary with these words, Hail Mary, full of grace, as if to say that Mary is a repository of grace, And it's out of the grace that Mary possesses within her being that she's able to give grace to others. But if you read Luke 1.27 and so many other Bibles, and here I'm quoting from the English Standard Version, it says, Greetings, O favored one. (laughs) That's a huge difference. See, in the ESV and most other translations, Mary isn't full of grace. Rather, Mary has received grace. That is, God has graced her with the joy of giving birth to the Messiah. And here's the kicker. All Greek scholars, and here the consensus is overwhelming, says that the correct translation of Luke 1.27 is that Mary has been given grace, not that Mary is a repository of grace. The Greek simply is unambiguous on this matter. Ah, but the Roman church insists that even though that's so, the church, the magisterium, the official tradition of the church has the right to interpret that passage for us, even while our eyes plainly tell us that's not what we're reading. Now, please don't think that today I've chosen to bash Roman Catholicism. I have not. What I've tried to do is to state things exactly as they do. But the idea that some sacred tradition takes precedence over what the text of Scripture states, you know, that was deeply rooted not just in the medieval church. It was also rooted within the Judaism of Jesus' day. 
You see, the Pharisees relied heavily on something they called the oral tradition. So what was that? Well, rabbinic Judaism at the time of Jesus stated that Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days. And of course, that's true. But it also stated that it doesn't take 40 days to write down the Ten Commandments. And so what else happened there? Well, the answer was that God also instructed Moses in matters that weren't written down. Well, that's probably also true. Now here, however, one has to stretch the ability to trust what's being told to us. See, the other thing not written down says, you know, rabbinic Judaism are contained in the oral Torah, the sacred tradition handed down through leading rabbis and sometimes contained in other later writings. So I hope you see. You know, the later Catholic Church said exactly the same thing. They argued that the apostles taught things that weren't written down in the scriptures and that those things, this oral tradition, is contained in the Roman Church. So I hope you see that on a practical level, this has meaning. Whether it's ancient Judaism or whether it's the medieval church, they are saying, we, the powerful organization, have the right to interpret scripture for you. You as an individual Bible reader don't have that right. And that would mean that doing your own Bible study doesn't get you anywhere. You have to listen to what the religious institution says you should believe. Trust them. Now, I need to say that's why we had a reformation. And that's why a host of Christians said, I protest. That is to say, why in 1415, John Huss, the Czech Bible teacher, was burned at the stake. You see, Huss had taught the scripture. He also taught that selling forgiveness of sins for money by the church was unbiblical. He taught that it was unbiblical for the church to go to war against her enemies, putting them to death. Instead, the church should do, said Huss, what Jesus called her to do, to love her enemies and to pray for those who persecuted them. Well, this put Huss in direct conflict to the teachings of the church. And so in 1415, Huss was invited to come and defend his views in the city of Constance. It's now in southern Germany. But instead of being given a chance to defend his views and show that his views were taken from the Bible, that meeting was a trap. Huss was told that his views contradicted the official teaching of the church. And after all, only the church has the right to determine what the scripture teaches. And since Huss would not recant, and since his views were found in the plain teachings of the Bible, well, the church of that day simply burned him at the stake. He was a heretic. He thinks in his pride that he can interpret the Bible. Only the magisterium in Rome can do that. I mean, after all, they have the apostolic traditions. And some of you might also remember that Martin Luther, over 100 years after Huss was burned, was invited to dispute his position in the city of Worms in Germany. There, the inquisitor did the same thing. Martin, you teach the same things as John Huss. Will you recant? Nothing was said about what the Bible actually taught. It was just a straight-out power play. Look, we're the magisterium, and we alone have the truth. And here's my response and the response of all Protestants. That's a fairy tale. The church doesn't have the truth. Only Jesus has the truth. Only the scripture has the truth. Let God be true. And every man, including every religious institution, let them be a liar. As we read Acts 17, 10 to 15, although 1,500 years earlier than Luther, we will find that the same spirit is again at work. Will we trust scripture or will we trust the leading rabbis of the day? 
Now, you're going to remember that it was in Thessalonica that as Paul was reasoning in the synagogue and making converts, that the synagogue leadership, out of envy, got a mob together to attempt to prosecute Paul. Ah, yes, how easily power religion and the abuse of the law will go hand in hand. And so before we read our text, let's review. Paul and his missionary team had been in Philippi, where in consequence of their activity, a mob was formed, false charges were brought, and the rule of law was forgotten. Without a right to defend himself in court and ignoring his Roman citizenship, he was beaten and thrown into prison. Well, of course, finally, the magistrates gave a formal apology, but still force him out of the city. And after that, he goes to Thessalonica where there is a synagogue, and Paul begins by reasoning in the synagogue. That is, he does not make his case by saying, look, I'm an apostle and I have the power of a magisterium. No, no, he takes the people to the text of Scripture, arguing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the hopes of the Jewish Scripture. And there, rather than taking him on, setting forth their own case, using the same process of showing scripture and appealing to reason. Instead, the synagogue leadership resorts to a power play. They raise up a mob in the city and they make a charge that Paul is opposed to the leadership of Caesar. And again, religion and the unholy alliance to want to use the power of law to get its own way. And it's horrible. And so Paul needs to get out of the second Greek town. And that's where we come now to our text, Acts 17, verses 10 to 12. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scripture daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Now, the Roman historian Cicero says that the town of Berea was off the main road. It wasn't on the Ignatian Way or the main highway. It was far enough from Thessalonica so that it would at least be a three-day journey from there. But there in Berea, they again find a Jewish synagogue and they follow the same pattern. They go there first and they present the case for Jesus from the scripture. And what they find is surprising and wonderful and joyful and refreshing. For here they found sola scriptura people, Bereans. We've been holding off, but now is the time to make an exciting announcement about In Doubt. The Young Adult Ministry of Back to the Bible Canada is now welcoming Andrew Marcus as its new host and director of InDoubt Ministries. Now, if his name rings a bell, it's probably because Andrew is an award-winning singer-songwriter and acclaimed worship leader and pastor. Andrew brings so much to the ministry, including a master's degree in theology, a huge network of Christian influencers and leaders, and most important, a vision and heart to reach young people with the truth of God's Word. So please pray. Pray for Andrew's leadership and pray that In Doubt, with God's blessing, would have a profound impact on the spiritual journey of many young adults across our nation. To find out more, check out indoubt.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Because Berea was not a major center, it might not have heard what happened in Philippi and Thessalonica. 
For Paul, a smaller center would have been welcome. But what was even more welcome was the attitude that the people of the synagogue had in Berea. Luke tells us the Jews, and here I think he again means the Jewish leadership in the local synagogue was more noble than those in Thessalonica. See, that little statement tells us that one must not come to an easy conclusion regarding all of Judaism in the first century. Each local synagogue had its own leadership, and the leadership would set the tone for the attitudes that you would find there. And you'd have to assume that the leadership in Berea had a pattern of making the study of the text of Scripture and its application to be a priority. And more than that, they would have believed that they could study the Bible for themselves and understand it. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy arrive, and Paul's the teacher. The synagogue leadership would have asked him to teach, as he had done in other places. And he would have done the same teaching he had done in other places. So let's ask the question, what exactly would Paul have taught there? So if we go back to what Luke tells us about what Paul taught in Thessalonica, where for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scripture. And we do know that by the time of Jesus, the Hebrew Bible, the Scriptures, had already been determined. The Jews had 22 books in their Bible. Now, if that surprises you, well, that's because our Old Testament has 39 books. So let me explain. The last 12 books of the Jewish Old Testament, the books that we today call the Minor Prophets, well, for the ancient Jews, those 12 books were contained in one scroll. And so what we now call 12 books, the Jews thought of simply as one book. The content of those books, however, were exactly the same as the content of our books, you know, from Hosea to Malachi. Well, Lamentations was attached to Jeremiah, and it made up only one book, and so on. And what I'm saying is that the 22 books of the Jewish Bible in the time of Jesus and the time of Paul, those 22 books were exactly identical to the 39 books of our Old Testament. And so Paul was an Old Testament preacher. But not just an Old Testament preacher, but now since Jesus had come, Paul was determined to show that Jesus was the key to understanding the entire Scripture, the Old Testament, and that the Old Testament anticipated the coming, the ministry, the sufferings, and the resurrection of Jesus. And you'll remember that back in Acts 17, verse 3, Luke tells us what Paul preached in the synagogue in Thessalonica. He says that he explained and proved that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, or he is the long-expected Messiah. Now, those of us who read that today might wonder which Old Testament text Paul would have used. You know, Luke doesn't tell us, but given what we find in the rest of the New Testament, we can be reasonably assured of the texts that were highlighted. I have no doubt Paul used Psalm 2. It's a Psalm of David. The psalm is a psalm of the Lord's anointed. You know, the Hebrew word for anointed is the word Mashiach, Messiah. Psalm 2 was agreed by most rabbis to be a messianic psalm. And of great interest would have been verse 7, in which David, who serves as a representative of the Messiah to come, is told, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. No doubt, Paul would have had the opportunity to speak of Jesus' baptism and the voice that came from heaven. This is my beloved son. Paul would also have explained Psalm 16, and he would have referenced verse 10, where David is promised that God would not abandon 
his soul to Sheol or let his body see corruption. And yet, of course, David's body did see corruption. And yet Paul would have said that the Messiah, the one who is David's heir, Jesus, was raised from the dead just as Psalm 16 had predicted. No doubt Paul would have presented evidence for the resurrection of Jesus at that point. Paul would have also spoken from Psalm 110. He would have pointed out that verse 4 makes the statement that the Messiah is going to have a priestly role. And of course, he would have taken the synagogue congregation to Isaiah 53, the poem about the suffering servant of Yahweh. Verse 4 says, the servant of the Lord will be smitten and afflicted by God. Verse 5, that he was wounded for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 6, that the Lord has laid onto his servant the iniquity of us all. And then in verses seven and eight, that he would be slaughtered like a lamb brought to the altar and that he would be cut off from the land of the living. No doubt as Paul preached this, he would have recounted the sufferings on the cross that Jesus actually endured and that this was exactly what the prophet Isaiah was describing. Verse nine, that his grave was assigned to the place where a rich man would have been buried. And Paul would have described the grave of that rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. And yet verse 10 says that even though it was the will of the Lord to crush him, that the Lord would prolong his days. And here, Paul would have described the resurrection. And again, he would have gone back to Psalm 16. I don't know where else Paul would have gone. Would he have gone to Genesis 3.15, that the Messiah, would crush the head of the serpent and render Satan unable to stop a harvest of souls unto the Lord. I have no doubt he would have done that. Would he have gone to Deuteronomy 21 verse 23, that anyone hung on a tree was cursed by God and that Jesus on the cross bore the curse that was rightly due to us? Or did Paul just start at Genesis and do a survey of the entire First Testament all the while explaining the ministry of Jesus? I think he probably did. And he carefully highlighted each messianic text and explained the ministry of Jesus in detail. Then after he would have preached, Luke tells us, the entire synagogue in Berea went to work. They daily examined the texts Paul had mentioned. And no doubt, they had home Bible study groups. And we must remember that these Jews were not starting from scratch. They'd been studying the Bible for a lifetime and they knew it well. And Luke tells us they had but one concern, and that concern was, when Paul explained all this to us, was he using the Bible rightly? Does the flow of the Bible really reveal what Paul is teaching? Instead of jumping to an emotional conclusion, either one way or the other, they continued their in-depth study of Scripture. And what happened? Well, verse 12 says, Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. You know, in Thessalonica, Luke said some were persuaded. There had been a minority, but here it was many. And the Gentiles who were attached to the synagogue, among them, they too had been studying scripture alongside of their Jewish brothers and sisters. Many of them believed as well, as well as some very prominent men and women of the city. One would be pleased with that result. Here, finally, a peaceful place for a Christian church to be formed, a place that highly valued scripture. But alas, something else happened, Acts 17, 13 to 15. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. 
Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, as soon as possible, they departed. You know, it would seem on this side of eternity that the good and saving news of Jesus will always be in a fight for its life. You might remember that the synagogue leadership from Pisidian Antioch and from Iconium followed Paul to Lystra, seeking to cause him trouble wherever he went. This is again happening now that Paul is in Greece. And that should have us consider the application. You'll remember that Paul had received a vision that urged him to take the gospel to Macedonia. So here's the application. God may call you to do something, but that doesn't mean you won't have opposition. But God's in control. Paul is going to have to move on, and then, for the first time so far, he's traveling by himself. He probably gets on a ship that sails off and he's brought to Athens while Silas and Timothy remain in Berea. And Paul's ministry in Berea, that wonderful ministry, it's now over. He's never, as far as we know, going to go back there again. But the lesson of Berea would never be forgotten. Wherever there are men and women who make it a practice to study the Scripture, to pay attention to the text itself, That includes the context of a passage, the grammar of the words before us, the historical background of that text, and the overall flow of the entire Bible. Wherever men and women do that, there will also be men and women who will resist the wiles of those who simply tell us what we should believe. I'm reminded of Luther's words that said, unless I am convinced by scripture and by evident reason, I will not recant or abandon my faith. May that be said of all of us. May we listen to the Bible as its final authority on all matters of faith and conduct. Thanks, John. Let me say this, though. I think it's important that listeners understand that what you've presented regarding Catholicism comes from the Catholic Church itself, not from a place of animosity. Yeah, I don't have animosity. And I want to say, I have read the Catholic Catechism, and I also am careful when I go to websites that I go to official Catholic websites so that I hear the official teaching. In their official teaching, they sometimes argue against Protestants. I'm giving a defense, and it's proper for me to do that in order to teach God's people. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. Happy New Year. And a special thanks to all who tuned in and supported the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada in 2022. With a new year upon us, many of you may be thinking about changes you'd like to make in 2023. Well, here's one to consider. Let's all commit to spending more time with God in His Word. And I've got good news. Back to the Bible Canada has a variety of resources to help you do just that, including Quiet Spaces Volume 2, a 30-day devotional by Dr. John Newfeld, or 31 Days of Hope and Humor, a family devotional from Laugh Again and Phil Calloway. And to encourage you in your Bible reading, check out our one-year Bible reading plan. 
To explore all these resources or to make a donation to this ministry, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.